Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning and welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Programme. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm talking to Sandy Jeffs about the book she wrote collaboratively with Margaret Leggett out of the madhouse from asylums to caring community. Um, so welcome Sandy. Oh, thanks Di, thanks for having me. It's a great uh, joy to talk to you about this marvellous book and congratulations, it's an extraordinary achievement. Oh, thank you, it's nice to have that sort of affirmation because you never know when you write a book whether you know it's going to speak to anybody else or make sense to other people but it's it's so far it's um you know been fairly well received so we're really grateful for that yeah well it's um it combines your memoir and your poetry with an academically sound research project into the history of the Larundel institution I was deeply impressed by your qualitative research and the interviews that you did with former staff and inmates. So well done. Yeah, it was a, a labour of love and uh, and tracking down the people was um, really interesting too because it really came around with word of mouth and, and people who I, I had known who had been in La Rundle. So um, just tracking them all down was, it was interesting and I think I did the first interview in 2011, so it's 10 years ago. Uh, and I kept interviewing up until about 2016, I think, and I, and I think I did face-to-face 71 people, and then another nine or so wrote their recollections for me and sent them to me. Um, so it was really lovely, and, and I think interview, interviewing the people was just a joy, and people were so gracious and so um, so kind to give me their recollections and to, to, to give them unrestrained and you know un, uncensored and really talking about, for some people, really... really painful stuff that happened to them at La Rundle, uh, whereas for the nurses they had a fabulous time. So there, there were contrasting experiences of La Rundle that were really poignant. Yeah, now um, you have a very personal experience of La Rundle because you are a former inmate. Um, so what was your own background experience of La Rundle? How did you end up there? Well, I was diagnosed with schizophrenia in 1976 and my first admission was to the uh, um, Queen Victoria Hospital psych ward and I was there for four weeks and they didn't know what to do with me and in the end they discharged me then they sent me to Parkville Psychiatric Unit in, in uh, December 1976 with a letter of introduction and I was admitted there and I was there for three months and that's where the diagnosis was made and I was seeing a doctor there um, the, the psychiatrist there who I was seeing as, a, as an outpatient and he moved to La Rundle in 1977 I think and so I was seeing him at La Rundle, and then when I had another psychotic episode, he said, well, you may as well come into La Rundle and be treated here. And that was 1978, and that was, that was the beginning of my La Rundle experiences. So I had, I think, seven admissions to La Rundle between 78 and 1991. Right. And what, what were your first impressions? Did you find it helpful or harmful? 
Uh, first impression was how big it was. Um, coming from the really small ward at, at, at the uh, Queen Victoria and then the relatively small two-ward uh, hospital at the Parkville Psychiatric Unit, going to La Rundle, which was huge in comparison, was really a bit of a culture shock. There were so many wards and so many patients. I think I had about seven or 800 patients when I first went there and there were many, many wards. So it was the bigness of the place that was quite stark and, and overwhelming. But uh, my, my experiences of La Ronda were more benign than a lot of people had. A lot of people who I spoke to had really bad um, trauma, traumatic experiences at La Ronda. Mine were, mine were more benign and I only had one really bad experience, which is uh, unfortunate, but, but the other good experiences really coloured my, my feelings for La Ronda. So I had good nursing Good, good, good nursing experiences where the nurses spent time in the wards, where they spent time with the patients. And I generally had a, had a fairly, uh, I, I could say healing time, but it was a curative time because you had the gardens and you had time in which to gather your, your sanity. You weren't chucked out of the ward after seven days because someone mad and needs your bed. You had time there to, 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 to find your equilibrium and to, and to just, you know, just to find some healing. Great. Um, now, how did you decide to write the book and how did you happen to be working with Margaret Leggett? Well, it wasn't my idea initially to write the book. It was some friends. Um, we were sitting, they were in the spa and we were sitting around and they had a glass of wine and there were some cheese and bickies on the, on the plate. Sounds and fun. they said, why don't you write a book about La Because I'd had such an association with it. And I think at the time I thought, oh, yes, I can do that. And, and I thought I initially thought I was going to write a history of La Ronda, like a proper history. And it soon dawned on me that I'm not a historian and I couldn't write a history as such in a, in a proper sort of way. And I thought, I think I'll just interview people who were past inmates and past staff at La Ronda and see where it takes me. So I started the interviews and as, I, as they were mounting, I mean, I did so many in those few years, so many interviews and I was overwhelmed by the project thinking... I cannot do this. Uh, it, it's just, it's just beyond beyond my capacity as a writer to do it. And so I thought, I think I'll phone a friend. So I phoned Margie Leggett, who I, I've, I've known since 1978 or nine, I think. And uh, she's been a, a care, carer advocate, and she was the first CEO of the Schizophrenia Fellowship, which is now called Wellways. And I rang Margie and said, Margie, how about being co-author on my book about La Rundle? And I think she thought for thought about it for about a second and said, yep, I think I'll do that. So that, that was the beginning of our collaboration and, and it was a wonderful collaboration. It was the best thing I did was to, to involve Margie. Um, so she had a wealth of experience and a wealth of knowledge in mental health and even though we disagree on some points, like about language and about um, um, or just a few issues, we really navigated our, our differences quite uh, really respectfully and with, with a lot of humour. So it was a great collaboration in the end, and I'm so glad that I I brought Margie on board. Yeah, and I think that it's um, it it shows the uh, groundedness of the work that it has both the experience and understanding of an inmate and a staff member. Um, now, just in terms of the language, I know that Margie didn't like to use the word mad, but you identify as mad. Yes, I do, and I talk about my mad comrades. Um, I, I've never shied away from that sort of language. I think I'm cavalier with language, and I do call myself mad and a mad woman, and Margie has felt very uncomfortable with that. And that's fair enough, because she's from a 
paradigm where you're trying to really um, be respectful to, to, the, to mental illness and to people who are mentally ill. But I think, I'm, I think calling a spade a spade is okay. And, and if, if, if I'm comfortable with it, then I can do it because it's my experience and I, and, and I can claim my experience and, and celebrate my experience. Not that I'm saying it's great to be mad. No. But I have that experience and I think I can use the language to my own ends. Yeah. But, um, but it's, good to have, it's good to have the conversation about language, though. Yeah. Now, I was impressed by the interdisciplinary nature of the work. Um, you discussed theories of treatment for mental illness, including the demonization of psychiatry, and you combine that with your poetry and your personal reflections, as well as Margaret's analysis. Um, could you summarise some of the theories of mental illness that are or were popular but which you think are not helpful in supporting people with those problems? Yeah. Well, there have been a lot of paradigms over the years. I think the, um, the one that where, where families are blamed has always been an interesting one. So R.D. Lang in particular and the, and the anti-psychiatry movement blamed families and, and, and Frieda Fromm Reichman in the 1950s coined the term the schizophrenogenic mother where it was, it was said that the mother drove her kids mad by by being uh, being overbearing and having a, a, a sort of um, what's the word castrating the father figure in, in in the relationship, and so families became blamed for the madness of their kids, and this led to psychiatry not not engaging with families when when kids were brought into hospitals because the, they were the, they were the naughty bad families. So that wasn't very helpful in terms of caring for someone with a mental illness. Um, if you discharge them to a family who you think is causing their madness, what does that mean? Yeah. So it demonised care, all carers who were tarred by that brush of the of the schizophrenogenic mother and family blaming. So that was one thing. Um, then, we go, then in the 1970s and 80s, the medical model of mental illness became very, very, very big, and it really shaped psychiatry and its, its approach to mental illness. But the therapeutic community model was sort of trumped by the medical model and, and the discovery of... Uh, medications in the 1950s sort of trumped the, the, the talking cure and brought into being the medical model and how we, we're going to treat mental, mental illness with medication only. And that became big in the 1980s in particular. Um, so, And, of course, a lot of people are, are unhappy with the medical model because it's reductionist in saying that it's only about chemicals not being balanced, it's, not, it's about genetics, it's about, you know, all these um, physical, physical reasons why you've got mental illness. Uh, and, and so... It sort of excludes the psychosocial models of mental illness and, 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 of, and of treatment. Yeah, and I mean, mm. you know, mental illness can often arise in response to circumstances like toxic situations, you know, toxic um, domestic environment or toxic workplace. Or So, I mean, those aren't chemical causes. Those are situational mm. causes. Well, trauma, trauma, and now big in the mental health world now is trauma. And, and the effect trauma has on people and the effect it has on a person developing a mental illness. So that, that's now a, a becoming a rather big focus on, um, on treatment and it's sort of trumping other, other issues in mental illness. And I think it's sort of, I think trauma only is not, not just one explanation. And in, in a sense, I come from a traumatic background myself and, and I say that I'm a constellation of many forces and trauma is part of it, but also perhaps I did have a predisposition to a chemical imbalance in my brain. Perhaps there, there was some uh, a mental illness bubbling away that was responding to a whole lot of other factors of my life. I, you just don't know. So in a sense, we're all a constellation of many forces. Yeah, and I mean, finding out the cause of mental illness is not straightforward. 
at all. And as you say, there's been all these different fashions in um, in analysis, identifying the causes and so on. So it's clearly not just one thing or one solution. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's many things and, and it's so complex that I, I can't see them even unravelling the causes and effects of things. It, it just seems, like with schizophrenia, for example, the, more, the, longer, the longer I've lived with it, the more mysterious it's become to me. Uh, I, I think I have a handle on understanding it and then it will morph into something different and change and, and, I, and I don't have the same handle on it. So it's a mysterious illness. They don't know what causes it, and they don't. And there's no cure. There's only there are only medications which sort of quell the symptoms. Okay. Now, one of the great things about the book is that it has some of your poems. Um, and Sandy, you're very well known in the Melbourne poetry community for your poetry. So I was really pleased that you included some poems in the book. Um, now, well, let's go to Alison Larundel Land. Um, how did you end up writing that? Yeah, I wrote I wrote the poem because um, I'd been in, into La Rundle, I snuck in and, and risked a ten thousand dollar fine, um, and and went went through the perimeter about the um, the defence perimeter, and I just saw all the vandalism and all the graffiti and how and how destroyed it was, and it really made me think I need to to write a homage to La Rundle. and and the the title Alice in La Rundle Land actually is the title that of a pantomime that was performed at La Rundle in nineteen seventy eight by the nurses. Because the nurses in those days had quite a vibrant life, and and they performed pantomimes, and and the the text was written by Len Blair, who was the, the then chaplain, and the music was produced by Tony Owen, who was a psychiatrist at La Rundle. In fact, he used to come into the ward that I was in, and sit down at the piano and and take and take um, requests and just play anything. He was a fabulous pianist. Wow, that must yes. have been quite fun. And um, when, what year was it that you were walking around uh, La Rundle and uh, looking at the dereliction of it all? Well, I ran in twice. I went, went in once in 2005, I think, then once in 2011. So there was a bit of a gap. Right. And, it, and the second time it, it was to a different part of the hospital. And I wrote the poem after then, so whatever, whatever it was, whenever I wrote it. Yeah. But yeah. I thought I had to write a homage to La Rundle because it just seemed so sad to see it yes. as it was. Okay. Well, let's hear Alice in La Rundle Land. Alice in La Rundle Land. Alice fell down a rabbit hole and landed in topsy-turvy Larundle land, locked up, captive to lunacy, and a passing parade of mad hatters and march hares, eccentrics and musos and artists, and a poet or two, ordinary folk with the deepest sorrows and inconceivable lunacy, sharing delusions like needles, voices babbling in the background, ECT before breakfast, stellazine for lunch, Presiding for dinner, malleral at supper time, and to bed with a hallucination and a moggy. A place full of hunger, hunger for kindness, friendship, love. A curious secluded world, its dark side kept well hidden. Shadow-haunted inmates longing for peace with themselves. No one knowing the wars that raged within, or the deep pain wedged between spirit and flesh, destroying lives, friends and family picking up the pieces. Larundel Land's red brick walls now rubble, windows shattered, graffiti telling another story, a playground for vandals and urban explorers, once peaceful gardens dismembered, sombre ghosts roam the precinct, calling us to remember them. We will remember you, 
sitting in smoky rooms, crying alone, laughing with deranged angels, muddled and paranoid, chaotic and manic, anarchic and confused, prisoners stalking locked wards, keys jangling, medication trolleys rumbling into melancholic rooms, and the humour, the blacker-than-black humour, the cut-through-all-the-crap-and-misery humour. You will not be forgotten. We shall erect a monument to commemorate all who pass through Larundel land. We will remember the hellhole and sanctuary, the bottomless pit of despair, unexpected place of healing. Alice landed on her head in upside-down Larundel land, the madhouse that once stood on the edge of town where time dawdled and everyone hid in the shadows. Yeah, it's very beautiful evocation of a very complex place. Um, yeah, it was a complex place. There's nothing simple about La Rundle. It was a, a place of contradictions and uh, paradoxes. Yeah, and a sanctuary and a hellhole. Um, it's um, now on, on the subject of your voice as a person who's experienced mental illness. Um, I think that's one of the revolutionary qualities of the book. Um, you, and you point that out. You say uh, much has been written about madness by those who have never been mad. Um, do you find that medical professionals are open to listening to you? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, they, they play lip service to the idea that we should listen to the to the lived experience voice, and you would hope that they would do it more than they do. So um, I don't know whether they're siloed a bit, particularly the, the psychiatric profession and uh, maybe psychology. They're a bit siloed. But, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's, there are, there's movements around now that say we have to have co-production and co-design of services and of, uh, of um, treatment models and that we should listen to the lived experience. But I hope it's going to happen more than it has in the past. I know in the past there's been a lot of lip service paid to it, but... Hopefully with the Royal Commission and you know, things that are happening now that the lived experience will have a, a good healthy voice in, in co-design and co-production of services and, uh, and models. And um, so talking about um, walking through Lorundal and it's been vandalised and everything, what happened to the people who were in Lorundal? Where did they go and where do people go now who would formerly have gone to Lorundal? Oh, good question. Uh, when, when they, when they, it's called decanting when they closed it down. They decanted the people out of Larundel. Um, a lot of people who were in the back wards and who were the long-term patients with, uh, with little, so-called little prospect of recovery, they were sent to community care units and they were told initially that they were there for life, that they, they would be their homes. But some of the nurses reported that after two years the government changed its policy and these people were moved on. Now, I'm not sure where they were moved on to. Some went to... Um, residential places which were really grim and often often exploited by the people who owned them. A lot of people who left Larundel went back to their families, so their families became their carers 24-7, and that was quite um, stressful for some of the families because they didn't have the resourcing or the time and, 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 and um, possibility of caring for someone so, so intensely. So that was a problem. Some people did go to um, other, other accommodations, uh, Boarding houses, uh, a lot ended up there. I think some went to the street. Um, yeah. It was a bit sort of, it was, I don't know, I'm not quite sure what happened to them all and where they would, well, I suppose a lot now would be, would have passed away. 
but back at, back in the day, 20 years ago, I think there was a lot of um, angst about where these people were being decanted to. And I know families bore the brunt of the deinstitutionalisation. Yeah, I mean, and when you talk about Lorundal having beautiful gardens, I, I remember driving through it by accident once about when it had just closed but before anything had happened to it. And it was beautiful. You know, the, the gardens yeah. were extraordinary. Yes, they were beautiful, mm. and, they were, and they had gardeners who maintained them assiduously. Mm. Uh, I remember you know, they had gum trees and rose bushes and, and shrubs, and it was really quite meditative and curative just to walk around the gardens. And, of course, the psych wards now are in the back, back part of a hospital in a concrete jungle, and the idea of a garden is just you know, foreign because I think what's happened in our current system is that we've lost the notion of asylum I mean, the acute wards now don't even pretend to offer people asylum. They All they do is admit people, contain them, medicate them, and then kick them out because someone mad and needs their bed. And and that's not a good treatment regime, I don't think. No. Um, so there's no time now to, to, gather your, to gather your sanity in any profound way. Um, and, and I think the idea of losing the concept of asylum is really a, a, a shame because I think with mental illness... When your mind is unwell, it needs it needs asylum to to find itself again, and uh, and we're not doing that now. We, in fact, we've gone the opposite way. We don't. We just we just containing and medicating. Yeah, and on that happy note, um, there's another poem in the book called Medicated. Um, would you like to read that? Yes, medicated. Yes, I was I was sitting in my room one day, and, and I thought to myself, I was like Actold. And suddenly the idea of, how, of making the names of the drugs verbs came into my mind. And, and I've been on all these drugs at some stage. So, and I've probably forgotten some of the drugs I have been on. So it just popped into my mind to write this poem called Medicated. Roll up, roll up. Join me on the medication trolley. I've been on it for years. I was ligactled with bitter syrup. I was pimazided and malaruled and numbed. I was so stellazine, I was like a cat on a hot tin roof. I've been modicated into a shuffle and clozapined into a stupor. I was serenaced to drowsiness and abilified to sleeplessness. When I was risperidoned, I lactated like a cow. They cogented me to stop the look-ups, but I kept looking up. I was lithiumed and epilimed to even my pendulum. I've been imipramined, prothiodined, lexaprode, effexored and zolofted to happiness. I was valiumed and atavanned into tranquility. At bedtime, I was mogadoned, still noxed and to mazapamed to slumberland. Now I'm zyprexed and ravenous and fuzzled. I'm lamotrigined and balanced and Sarah quelled. Yes, indeedy. I'm medicated and dedicated to the medication trolley. Here's looking at you, pill bottles. Yeah. It's, um, it's extraordinary what a smorgasbord of drugs has been used, you know. Oh, uh, what, what I've put down my throat over the years is a bit... <laughs> it's, it's very, very worrisome, but, you know, I've, yeah. I've lived to tell the tale. I think my mind's relatively intact and, you know, I'm not, not too damaged. Well, congratulations on surviving the treatment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. And, and some people didn't survive so well, I have to say. Um, people who developed tardive dyskinesia because of the old drugs and people who um, have you know, sort of neurological effects of the drugs, it's really quite sad to see. Mm, yeah, no, they can be quite poisonous, some of them. Yeah, well, they're very powerful drugs when you think about it. Yeah. 
Um, so in terms of writing poetry, were you writing poetry while you were at La Rundle, or did it all happen after you left? Um, I, I started, I really, I, I wanted to be a poet for a long time, but didn't actually write poems, so <laughs> I thought I had this fake idea that I could be a poet, and um, it was a, a, a sort of a little pipe dream that I had. But when I first went crazy, I when I got out of hospital initially, I did start to document my madness in poetry, and, and it became a thing that I just did. Not that I showed many people the poems, and you know, I, I didn't have any confidence in my poetry, but I did keep writing them and kept writing them. And in a way, when I wrote a poem in those grim days, which were my chronic days, when I when not much was happening and I had not much hope, not much hope or um, you know any reason to get out of bed or purpose or meaning. Um, when I wrote a poem, it actually was a little act of an act of hope because it was something positive that was coming out of my imagination that showed that I still had an imagination and I was still able to use it. And when I held that poem on a bit of paper in my hand and looked at it, at the time it was evidence that I was still alive because not much was giving me um, a sense that I was still alive because my life was so grim. So this little life-giving poems that I would hold, hold in my hands were really important for me so I kept writing and kept writing and then I I had enough poems that I, I, for a little collection and I showed Susan Hawthorne who had started Spinifex Press. Um, I'd been to uni with Susan so it's not what you know it's who you know and, I, and Susan saw the poems and she said to me I'd really like to publish them in a book and so Poems in the Madhouse was born and it was published when I was 40 so life began at 40 for me and it was published in a joint volume with Deborah Staines's um, little collection called Now Millennium, and that was almost overnight my life changed. It was it was a transcendent, transformative moment because I went from someone who was just schizophrenia to being Sandy Jeff's poet, and having that new word poet to attach to my name was so positive and so life affirming. And which at the time just trans- transformed my life. It was just extraordinary. Yeah, the power of poetry is not to be underestimated. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And uh, let's hear the other poem about Bee Ward that uh, is in the uh, book. Sitting on the balcony of Bee Ward, yes. I remember Bee Ward um, had this balcony and, there, and along the balcony were these green vinyl-covered chairs uh, old-fashioned sort of chairs and I remember we used to sit on this balcony and people would smoke and others would just sit there staring into the courtyard but the courtyard was a beautiful courtyard with lovely um, shrubs and gum gum trees in it and it was, it was watered regularly every day so there'd be a mist of rain sort of coming over it every day but it was just a lovely little courtyard and I, I've got photos of that courtyard that I took in 2011 um, with, with the trees still there but in a much more vandalised state but the um, poem is about uh, just sitting on the balcony of Bee Ward. <clears throat> Enter the babbling idiot, witness to a saga. We are the sick people. We are the angry people. We are the unattractive people. We are the people with the faces that bear marks of tragedy and woe. Thousands of stories are etched on the masks of our souls as we sit and gaze, almost trance-like, out to the courtyard which is lush and green and dripping with moisture and mist, dripping with life itself. Sitting on our broken and shabby thrones, on the balcony of unsung songs, we wonder about the void in our lives, where once great expectations dwelled. Sometimes we laugh, but it always seems to have an edge of pathos, for deep inside much sadness reigns, 
As nicotine-stained fingers clutch at crushed cigarette packets that tell much about the ambience of the asylum, where our sanity or madness seems to hang on the long draw of that last cigarette. Yes, it's um, you very perfectly take us there to be Ward. So um, now, congratulations on winning the Oral History Award from the Royal Historical Society of Victoria. That's a great acknowledgement of the importance of your work here. Oh, we were delighted. I, mean, I can't believe that we actually won a, a prize like that. Um, it just, for, for us, it was validation. Because I know when I was writing the book, I thought, oh, God, I'm writing a really bad first-year uni essay here and, and I was really worried what I was doing. And I thought, oh, it's just no good. But it's actually lovely validation for us and, and I think Margie's really pleased about it. And it's nice that um, a book about mental illness can can win a mainstream prize. Yes, well, I think it's a, an extraordinary book and I, I hope that all medical practitioners read it because um, and poets read it too, you know, because you take us with you on your journey and, and then you, you transform some of your experiences into poetry and you've got the poetry of a few other friends. Yeah. Yeah, well... Um, it's a wonderful book, Out of the Madhouse, From Asylums to Caring Community. And um, I've been talking to Sandy Jeffs. And um, thank you, Sandy. Oh, thanks, Di. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book and I hope everybody reads it. You've been listening to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. And my name is Di Cousins. And you can hear the 3CR Spoken Word Program every Thursday morning at 9am.